It's a new day and it's time for another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I am your host, Mitch Michaels. Got a big show planned for you today. Major League Baseball playoffs, college football roundtable. We're getting ready for a big time in the sports year. Going to have a guest, Steve Leveney, on to talk about the MLB playoff, the wild card games this evening. Some big games to break down, a lot of series. We're going to talk about all that, but first, it's a college football roundtable. Two of my good friends, Ron Schultz and Matt Wittenberg, to recap a wild week in college football, Louisville Clemson, Tennessee Georgia, Heisman races, all that and more. It's the Money Mitch Effect. Let's go. All right, another episode of the Money Mitch Effect, and we're talking college football. We got a panel today, first time. Ron Schultz and Matt Wittenberg. What's going Thanks on, for stopping everybody? by. Yeah. Hey, happy on? to be here, Mitch. Yeah, Thanks for having us. All right, so we're going to recap what was one of the craziest weekends in college football um, that I can remember this season. It's been an, an epic season, definitely one for the ages. Before we get into the big market, big marquee matchups, what you guys talk about your alma maters? I know it was a rough day for both. Uh, Matt, I'll start with you. It was a pretty rough weekend, I know, both collegiately and professional. State of Arizona oh, took no it doubt, on No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, big, uh, big Arizona State guy and had some friends in town from college. We all went out to the game and very hyped up about it going into the Coliseum, undefeated 4-0, and USC team. That was kind of reeling from the early part of the season, so... Obviously, some pretty high expectations, and uh, unfortunately, those didn't get quite met. Losing. No, I. Uh, yeah, I thought it was a. I mean, it was a rough game. You guys took it on the chin, and and you're there too. It's a <laughs> double-edged sword there. Um, but I talked with Matt Gothard on the show last week about the different point spreads, and we brought up that game in particular. And I'm like, that's frightening. How USC was a ten-point favorite, one and three versus an undefeated Arizona State team. You saw a team in USC that had to have that win. They could not lose. And they came out and played their best game of the year by far. And I, I know you guys made a lot of mistakes and didn't play anywhere near the level you're capable of. But it was a, it was a tough atmosphere for any Pac-12 team to walk into. Yeah, absolutely. They, you said it. They had to have this win. They're looking one and four in the face. And Clay Helton's job is likely on the line if that happens. And... Uh, the spread, funny you mention it, rem- was reminiscent of last season against Utah. Utah came right. into the Coliseum as, I believe, fourth or fifth in the nation, undefeated. And they gave SC, I'm be- fr- fairly sure they were touchdown favorites in that game. And yep. that yeah. uh, raised a lot of eyebrows. And, hey, they backed it up this year as well. Yeah, they were third at the time. Um, yeah, and they were, as you said, a favorite. It was, it was a, a frightening, reminiscent moment there. But... There'll be other weeks, just one loss, Arizona State. After last season, you guys are on the right foot. Going yeah, forward. absolutely. We we all knew this was kind of be going to be a rebuilding year with a new starting quarterback, four new offensive linemen. So, honestly, to get the four wins at this point is, I'd say, ahead of expectations. So, everything else, bowl game at this point, would just be gravy. Yeah, hell, you guys are two games, <laughs> two, two wins away from a bowl game. That's a lot more than my team can say. Yeah, now, Ron... You went to Syracuse, and uh, yeah. you guys played Notre Dame this weekend. I'll, I'll tell a little personal story before I like to recap it. <laughs> I was at the gym that morning on the elliptical, and that was probably, for the first five minutes of the game, I should say, I was on the elliptical. And that's all you can really ask for when you're working out and watching a game is oh just God, offense yeah. left and right. 
There was what, like 30, 30, 35, 35 in the first five minutes. The first five minutes, yeah. And uh, it didn't really get much better for Syracuse at that point. Uh, I mean, at first, they came out, they answered uh, Notre Dame pretty well, and then the blocked extra point taken all the way back for the extra two points there uh, to put Notre Dame up three. They never really gave it back. Um, I just I felt like Syracuse offensively looked okay. I mean, they put up, you know, 35 points, 34 points. But, I mean, defensively, there's, there's a lot that needs to be fixed there. Um, I mean, from top to bottom, defensive line, the run defense isn't good. The pass defense is, is I mean, as porous as I've ever seen. It was just too easy for Kaiser and company to, to score. I mean, Equinemia St. Something. Brown was running free in the yeah. secondary the whole game. The whole game. The special teams touchdown, too much to overcome. Absolutely. You I feel mean, better about Syracuse's offense, but starting games, especially defensively, has not been has not been good. And we'll see where Dino Babers is. Yeah, I think, I think the I recruits think, have know, to come though. They absolutely, and and that's side. the thing is that people uh, you can't expect you know a brand new head coach coming in. These aren't his guys. Uh, I mean, Dino obviously is bringing a completely different philosophy to Syracuse football versus Scott Schaefer was very. Uh, defense-oriented, very defense-heavy. Um, I mean, we still kind of had an average defense last year, uh, but the offense was about as stagnant as it gets. So it is refreshing to see the fact that we can move the ball and we can score. Um, but on the opposite side of the ball, it's it's as bad as it gets. And and uh, I actually heard a quote from Dino Babers today was that, uh, you know, you guys are gonna like the cake that we're cooking here, but it's you can't eat the batter yet because right now Syracuse like football that. is is goopy batter right now. I like cake it's, too. It's, so that's good. Yeah, well said, well said. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, you guys. It was very similar to SC. Notre Dame was coming off an embarrassing loss and needed to. Go oh, absolutely. When, when when that I saw last week that they lost to Duke, I instantly was like, oh no, you <laughs> yeah. know, they're gonna come out yeah. firing right away, and they did. I mean, right away two deep touchdowns and, and then the kickoff return touchdown. I mean, they were ready. They were fired up, ready to go. And, and in, in the national spotlight on an NFL field there, Syracuse just wasn't wasn't ready for that. Absolutely not. future looks – it looks moderately bright. Well, there's still some work to do. But. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, like I said about Arizona State, you guys are two wins away from a bowl game. We, we need that four, and I think we're on the edge there. I'm hoping we can turn it around this weekend against Wake Forest. Uh, they're they're a surprising four and one team at Wake Forest though. Yeah, still a lot to be uh, you know learned about that team. But the one thing it might get in your way, Ron, is the surprisingly uh, reinvented strength of the ACC, and that'll lead us right into the game of the week. Lived up to the hype. Clemson and Louisville, forty two thirty six. Clemson wins. Number five team, an underdog at home, which just seemed crazy when that came out. Had the lead early. 28-10 at halftime, Clemson wins uh, 42-36 late stop at the end. The first thing I'm going to say, and I'll pose this question to you, Wade. when you watch a game like this, two great teams playing in any sport, a lot of times it's not the cleanest played game. For as exciting as it was at, at times, there was a lot of sloppy behavior and uh, sloppy play. Clemson, in my opinion, had this game wrapped up and let Louisville come right back in by no showing the third quarter. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about second-half adjustments. uh Say what you want about uh, Bobby Petrino. The guy can flat-out coach, and he had his team maybe not so well prepared to go in the first half, obviously going into a hostile environment that is Death Valley there in Clemson. 
But yeah, you can't say enough about his second half adjustments. And you knew that Lamar Jackson was eventually going to get his. Unfortunately, just not enough to overcome a team that, frankly, in Clemson that hasn't performed up to their capabilities thus far in the season. And they feel like they had to have, make a statement when this, with this game in front of their home crowd. And then sort of put that stranglehold up on the ACC and uh, with FSU coming in there and or them yeah. traveling to Tallahassee excuse me in a couple of weeks with and if they get past that one then it's all theirs for the taking it certainly is and before we get to Clemson Ron let's talk about Lamar Jackson a, a great second half struggled early, uh, in the second quarter but the workload this guy put puts forth he threw the ball 44 times 27 for 44 Carried just 31 times 295 yards yeah had 31 carries I'm impressed with his durability so far and his endurance going into games. Because we've seen it, even in blowouts, as the game goes along, he gets stronger. Right, and and I think it's because, as far as his conditioning, I mean, the kid is in incredible shape. And you can see as the defense starts to wear down, that's when he starts to take over. It's a track background, right? Absolutely, and, and I think that, that really feeds into it. And I know this is such an overused analogy, but you look at him and you, you see Mike Vick at times when he's just the way he's able to get out of the pocket, and he's such a natural runner with the football, he looks like he should be running with the ball. He's not a quarterback running with the ball. He's a football player. And, and I mean, at times, he's he's an athletic freak. As as a Syracuse fan, I know when he <laughs> hurtled into the end zone, I mean, you guys are going to be seeing that all, uh, all year on the highlights. But, I mean, the kid can flat-out play. And, uh, you know, he came into that game, especially this Clemson game, uh, with kind of – the tag of Heisman favorite, and uh, you know, even though they didn't get the win, I think he's still impressed uh, on yeah. a big stage in, oh, yeah. in, a, in a hostile environment there in Death Valley. So as we switch to Clemson, now this game to me was a microcosm of why I think they could beat anyone in one game, but I'm still a little hesitant to give them a, a pick them to win the title. They looked great in the second quarter and when they needed to in the fourth quarter. But some ill-advised mistakes, and uh, Watson was a little sloppy with the ball. Ron, I just don't know if they're if they're going to be able to put together four quarters against the elite teams in the playoffs consistently. This was a great win, but I, ca- I came away with it thinking they were the better team. They, it shouldn't have been this close. I think top to bottom, Clemson is the better team, uh, and, and that's why, as an ACC fan, uh, you know, kind of rooting for someone other than Alabama to win the national championship, I was kind of happy that Clemson won. Um, because this kind of puts them in the driver's seat as far as winning ACC and thus getting into um, the the playoff. Uh, I think top to bottom, Clemson is the better team. Deshaun Watson, uh, I mean, five touchdowns, it, it, 306 yards, and, and another 91 on the ground. I mean, that's that's great stat lines, but the three interceptions are the ones you really got to yeah. worry about those. Uh, and and I think he he showed that he can play, and at the end of the game, he stepped up, he drove them down the field, and, and they scored a touchdown when they needed to to get that win. Um, but I do agree with you that Clemson, top to bottom, is the better team, and I think has the best chance uh, from the ACC going forward to to advance in the playoff and maybe make the national championship. I would have liked to see them stick with the run game a little more. They were they were rolling on the run with Watson and uh, Gallman, but... Threw the ball a little too much, let Louisville back in the game. Well, let's talk about that final play. 
fourth and 12, they get about 10, wide receiver runs out of bounds. Why doesn't he dive for the first and that, that was the first thing I thought. I just don't get it. Why he didn't dive, why he was even forced Football out of bounds. Football IQ. Just, it's there, was a play, uh, there was a play in the NFL game yesterday, uh, Rams Cardinal, not to bring up bad memories, Ouch. where Gurley <laughs> picked up a first down on a similar play. And he just stopped and dove ahead. Exactly. But the more I read about it, the more I thought maybe this kid just didn't realize that it was 12 after the false start penalty. Mm-hmm. Maybe the co- the play call was an intermediate route, and he just lost track of how far he actually had to get. Because he seemed like he thought he had it, even though he was well short. Yeah, those in-game situations, it's tough to predict what sort of position you're going to be in as a player. And I feel like, yeah, it's simply not being aware of the time, the down, knowing where you're supposed to be on the field, and then fortunately it worked out for them, but... So let's uh, let's move ahead here on the on the uh, money Mitch effect with friends Ron and Matt as we talk about uh, both teams going forward. Now the updated AP rankings: we have Clemson at three now. It goes Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson three, Michigan staying at four. Louisville drops to seven, but it's important to note with Washington, Houston ahead of them. Louisville still ahead of several undefeated teams. And I think they deserve to be. Yeah, no, I think this is as good a loss as you can have. And the fact that they play Houston at the end of the season, Ron, there's a realistic chance that they could make the playoff. Now, even if they beat Houston, I think they need some luck, but it's it's in play for sure. I think absolutely it's in play, especially uh, because they, they, they put that whooping on Florida State. Uh, so they have they have one good win. I think if they get that second good win over, over Houston, or even the other way, if Houston well, wins yeah, out and wins that Louisville game, they're in. Next to, next to a in. loss, next to a, next to a Louisville winning, obviously that would have been great for Houston to beat on a few Louisville. They're still getting a damn good Louisville team Absol- to oh, beat. Absolutely. So that's, you, you almost I mean, think game, it's a playoff spot. Just, that, that game could be the playoff spot, exactly. The one thing that could get in its way, though, is that Washington team. Oh, uh, they... They, we'll go right into that game now because I wanted to get what is a Pac-12 spanking. fan. <laughs> yeah. What happened to Stanford? Um, I had a pretty good week in picks. I absolutely missed that one. Um, oh, you and me. And I'm, I think I'm, everyone I'm, missed I'm that kicking one. myself for two reasons. One, I didn't see enough of Washington's offense and how they moved the ball. Um, and two, I mean, the nickname Purple Rain is just perfect. Yeah, so <laughs> oh, absolutely. A good Prince reference any day of the week. Yeah, Washington, they obviously are the class of the Pac-12 and definitely proved it in that big-time Friday night signature win that that program hasn't had probably going back until the 90s. They actually honored the 1991 national championship team on the field during halftime of that game, so you knew something was going to be up in the air. But yeah, just the way, especially on defense, that the way that they just absolutely shut down Christian McCaffrey and that Stanford offense, and they never looked in rhythm at any point in the game, and you saw them trying to break out these weird trick plays that I don't know if David Shaw had it even ran in practice the way that they looked, but that team is a legit playoff contender, no doubt about it. They're the class of the Pac-12. This game in particular with Stanford, we talked about this last week, they're so conservative. If they fall behind early big, it's hard for them to put up points fast, and you saw it. They were down 13-0 in the first, 23-0 at halftime, even with Christian McCaffrey. It's hard to move the ball. When they miss Hogan at quarterback, they miss a guy that could keep the defense honest, and I, I don't think this is McCaffrey not playing It's good. Teams are just completely keying off on him. And, and I think that's because there's not that much else that Stanford can throw at teams. 
I think McCaffrey is by far and away their biggest weapon and one of their only weapons. Uh, they're offensively, they just don't look good. They don't. They look kind of stagnant. They look like they're trying to be, you know. And we always kind of joke that Stanford is kind of like a Big Ten team that's in the Pac-12. Well, right now they look like a Big Ten team because the way their offense the, is. the way their offense is running the ball and the way they're moving right now is just it doesn't look good. Their defense is still, I, I think, uh, pretty stout, even though they gave up forty-four. Um, but again, that Washington, you look back what you were saying uh, that you know Washington hasn't had a win like this since the '90s, and I think you can really attribute their resurgence to coaching because yeah, it, it all comes Chris back Peterson. to getting Chris Peterson, taking bringing him in from from Boise State and what he did with that program, and then to turn around Washington. Just it, it has been impressive. Obviously, it wasn't overnight, but no, he's really made that program a national powerhouse. I mean, they look good. I think. I think you're right, and I think Washington is is building for the future down the road. This could be a little mini dynasty in the Pac-12. Is this is it all up to them now, guys? Is are they the only team in the Pac-12 that is that could possibly have a seat at the playoff table? The way things are looking, I know Stanford could definitely win out and bounce back, but a loss like this goes a long way on the committee, and and I don't know. We'll Absolutely, see. like I think with the East Coast bias, I think that so that really yeah that <laughs> that doesn't them. help at all. The Big 12, likely not going to get a team in the playoff. So then you're looking at so, Ohio State, Michigan winner, Bama or whoever comes out of the SEC, Clemson, and then the Houston-Louisville winner. Yeah, right. essentially, those wow. are uh, that could be a playing game. I mean, I feel like, yeah, if the Pac-12 wants to guarantee a seat at the table, Washington's got to win out. Like, will it happen? I mean, That's tough, t- to, tough to say. It, the Pac-12 is famous for... Uh, sort of cannibalizing itself the last few years. Obviously no playoff team last year. And it's a it's a tough slate. Like I said, don't sleep on Washington making this trip to Eugene. This has all the makings of being a classic trap game, but the way that they played against Stanford though, it's it's hard to pick against them. Before we go on to some other games, I want to get your guys' thoughts on the updated Heisman trophy race. Right now if we go to a uh, the Bavada sports book, the odds right now. At this point in the season, Lamar Jackson's a favorite two to five. Deshaun Watson second, five to one. JT Barrett, seven to one third. Christian McCaffrey, twelve to one fourth. And rounding out the top five is Greg Ward Jr. from Houston at sixteen to one. Is it possible that McCaffrey might not even be a finalist this year? I think honestly, right now it's a two man race. Deshaun, okay. Deshaun Watson and and Lamar Jackson, although okay. you know who well, else, I, well, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know who else I would put in there actually would be Greg Ward, and I think he's a little low if I if I were a betting man, but I think Greg Ward has been absolutely incredible. See, he's been he's impressed me. See, I mean, beyond what I would have expected him to him coming into the season. I'm not knocking Jackson or Watson one two clearly the case, but you don't think J T. Barrett has a chance to win that? Oh, I think he does, and I think I think the yeah. issue right now is that Ohio State just hasn't played anyone. Yeah, and I think yeah. if yeah. he shows up and he, you know, plays well against Michigan, against Michigan State, Wisconsin this week against Sorry, Wisconsin. Man. I mean, here's the real test: is against Wisconsin their first one anyway. Uh, and I think if he comes out and he performs, then yes, absolutely. But as of right now, I, he hasn't, you know. Just because you're beating Rutgers, the the basement dweller of the Big Ten. I mean, I'm not it's I'm not impressed right now. Big Ten teams, right? Exactly. I think being the Pac-12 guy that I am, it's way too early to discount Christian McCaffrey. I'm just looking ahead at Stanford's schedule down down the line. He plays some 
soft defenses. Washington State next week. Stanford the week after. Colorado, a little bit better this year. I'm not entirely sold on their defense yet. Arizona, Oregon State, Oregon, Cal, and finish out with Rice. I mean, he's going to have every opportunity to put up huge video game numbers, and provided Stanford keeps winning, maybe finishes the season with one or two losses, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind he gets an invite. As to whether he wins it, that's a completely different argument. It's more The award's more skewed towards quarterbacks, so I would agree that Watson, Jackson, no doubt, the favorites, and assuming whichever quarterback comes out on top in the ACC, I figure is your presumptive winner. Yeah, and there doesn't have to be three finalists last year the way they did. The voting was so skewed towards those three that we could Absolutely, see four yeah. or five. Even. Exactly, yeah. And, and no more way. guys could go. And I do agree with you that McCaffrey, I mean, has a lot of big opportunities. I think when the voting comes down to it, I think kind of the no-show against Washington will not help his case. I don't know how much mm. it will hurt his case, but it definitely won't help it because, you know, big-time players step up in big-time games, as the saying goes, and he wasn't exactly there for no. them uh, this past week. No, no, no argument here. He's just he's going to have the opportunities. They're going to continue to force-feed him the ball, and depending on what happens with Washington, if they happen to slip up or if Stanford wins out, I still see him being there in New York. All right, we'll move on to another game right now. Money Mitch Beck, Matt Wittenberg, Ron Schultz. Tennessee Georgia provided uh, the most drama we've seen all season, uh, the most offense we've seen to end a game. Uh, Tennessee wins on a hail mary. They're five and zero. Georgia drops to three and two. Initial reaction to this game, Ron, from the Tennessee side that saw their season teetering again, but again finds a way to remain undefeated. It's remarkable. I don't know how they keep doing it. I mean, first of all, shout out to, to our boy Sean Sullivan. And then Vols. Uh, I mean, I watched that game with him, and <laughs> the uh, the tears started when Georgia scored with 10 seconds left. The tears continued uh, after the Hail Mary. The mood just changed. Those said tears. Um, tears. But I tell you what, this team, uh, they're resilient. I'm, I'm impressed uh, to, to go out and you take advantage of every little kind of, kind of mishap that Georgia gave them in terms of, you get that extra 15 because of the excessive celebration penalty on the touchdown. That moves them back. And then Evan Berry takes the short kickoff, takes it all the way to the 48. Then they get an extra five because of, uh, you know, the offsides. I think each each thing kind of added to Tennessee's um, confidence there. And they were like, okay, things are kind of going our way. Maybe, just maybe. And I think at that point it's just, it's kind of luck, but it's also, you know, Butch Jones says that they practiced that every day. It, it was a clean Hail Mary. It was an absolutely clean Hail Mary, and they knew they knew what they were doing. Uh, I think Dobbs threw a great ball, and, and, I mean, they went up and got it. And I was very, very impressed with the team. As far as college kids, you, you don't necessarily see them always kind of step up to the occasion like that. And I was impressed in terms of, I mean, how, how do you get these kids that are, you know, less than 22 years old, to step up and, and say, wait, we still kind of have a shot here. There's a little bit of time left on this clock, and we might be able to win this. I think Tennessee and Dobbs are the most perplexing teams and players this year. They repeatedly fall behind early in games. But again, this comeback didn't seem out of reach when they were down big in the first half because of how, they, like Florida, Florida how, how they were giving up points and how they were just blatantly not taking advantage of opportunity, coughing it up at the goal line breakdowns in the secondary. I wonder, though, Witt, 
about Dobbs in particular. Are we going to start to see him, as the season goes on, clean up some of those early mistakes? He's showed great resiliency. I've been preaching that for weeks, but I'd like to see a little more Christmas early and, and not have to dig into this team out of a hole. Absolutely. It's fair to say that this team hasn't put a complete to get complete game together to this point, and falling behind early, it's great character building. It's great that they've been able to come back, but at some point, you've got to figure... Well, it might run out. It might run out, exactly. I, I don't think they fall behind by 17 to an AM team at College Kyle Station. Kyle Field. And win the game. Because I don't think AM is going to stop scoring. No, that's their. Uh, AM reminds me a little bit of, the, of a Pac 12 team in their offensive regard. They probably have the best wide receiver core in the nation. Trevor Knight's playing lights out. So if they fall, like you said, if they fall behind 17, 14 going into the second half, They've been able to put together at home. They did it in Athens this last weekend, which was impressive, no doubt. But you just get the feeling that you can't keep living like that. Eventually it's going to bite you, and they're going to need to get off on faster starts, let Dobbs throw it a little more. Right. And uh, I, think, I think we're going to find out who this team is in the next two weeks. I mean, you got A&M, and then you got Bama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're wondering who is Dobbs, who is Tennessee, we're going to find out in the next two weeks. If they come out 2-0... Then we got ourselves a team, a contender. And yeah. If they if they come out flat against A and M, I think like you said, A and M's not going to give up, and you know Nick Saban ain't going to give up. And that no, that no. Alabama team, they're just going to pour it on like they did against USC. Once they smell blood, that Bama team just continues to pour it on. Yeah. Uh, so I think if Tennessee gives anything like that, uh, they they could be in some trouble. But I mean, right now it, you can't knock them. They're no. they're five and zero, two rank wins, and I mean they have found a way. They have resiliency. And I, one note on Georgia, I think it's, it's a heartbreaking loss. This is a team that's in the rebuild. I like some of the things they've done. they got to get better defensively. Easton throws the ball pretty well, and they got a lot of years left of him. So I think this is a team that, it sucks now, obviously, mm-hmm. it's the worst way to lose, but they got some something to build off. And it was a good job bouncing back after getting destroyed by Ole Miss, not having Nick Chubb Absolutely. in that position. Yeah, Chubb still not at 100%, played a few snaps in this Tennessee game, which was a little surprising. But, yeah, I like what uh, Kirby Smart's doing. Georgia's obviously going to be one of those powers that's always going to be able to recruit. And you figure that they're going to eventually put it together. And, like you said, Ethan under center for the next three or so years. I mean, you got to like where they're headed. And they always run the ball, because even when, when Gurley got out, Chubb came in. That kid Mickle ran for 90 yards and a touchdown. Right, you can always count on Georgia running back. All right, let's move on to a Big Ten game here on the Money Mitch Effect. Uh, Michigan-Wisconsin, 14-7, old school Big Ten football. First note note on Wisconsin, Ron. I got to really tip my cap to them because they've had a brutal schedule. They weren't expected to even be close to 4-1 at this point in the season. Their only loss by 7 to Michigan in the big house. They beat Michigan State. And they beat LSU. But in the end, in my opinion, watching this game, Wisconsin just didn't have the playmakers to move the ball effectively enough. And I think a lot of that has to do uh, overall with Wisconsin. I just don't think they have uh, that go-to guy that when the, when the game is on the line, they can give the ball to. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the last recent, you know, good Wisconsin team that I can think of, you know, Russell Wilson, Monty Ball team, where it was like, the, the, it came down, the game came down to it. You felt good about putting the ball in Russell Wilson's hands, and you felt good about handing it off to Monte Ball. 
Uh, I don't know if they necessarily have that guy right now. No, uh, and I think yeah. that I think that's what they're missing. I think they're a good team overall, but I think you need a guy to close out games, and they don't necessarily have that right now. What we talked about Michigan last week, we don't know how good they are. We don't know what they're made of. They haven't been tested. This was a test. They passed it, maybe not with flying colors, but they got the win against a top-10 team at home. How do you assess their performance? They did what they had to do. Like you said, it was a classic uh, Big Ten game. Jabril Preppers constantly. You, every I feel like every defensive play you see him somewhere oh, in the midst. Got to be defensive player of the year at this point. But team team has yet to leave, leave the big house. They go on the road next week to Rutgers, so I, I'm not sure how much more we're going to find out about them <laughs> in their first uh, true road test. But, hey, they keep ending the weeks 1-0. They've taken care of everyone that's been in front of them. Colorado gave them a little bit of a scare, but, I mean, Colorado starting to look like a for real uh, team in the Pac-12 South at this point. But, yeah, you have to love what Harbaugh is doing. You have to love that he's preaching, let's take care of business, and uh, we'll learn a lot about them in the next couple weeks once they go to uh, East Lansing and face uh, Sparty on, looks like, October 28th. Jury's still out on Michigan, but... There's a lot of championship teams that have just done what they need to do and keep the train moving. On Michigan, though, I want to quick give a shout-out to Jordan Woods yeah, for the know, most right? incredible <laughs> interception I've probably oh, ever seen. Oh, that was seen. insane. I mean, the kid floated in the air, has elastic arms. I mean, that was absolutely insane. And, that, I mean, uh, he, not, not that that won or lost the game. Oh, no. I mean, well, that play, it, it, it's sort of, I mean, he it was helped him by a half step. That was great recovery. Yeah, and I think, and I think if that probably. ball gets through, he might be, you know, the, the – Wisconsin receiver might have been gone, but my goodness, that was that was incredible. If you haven't seen it, I know. You that, do. Well, that that was yeah, that was uh, the defensive play of the year, maybe the play of the year. I mean, there've been some good ones. Oh, yeah. that's up there. Um, so yeah, another big win. Mitch, being a big Ohio State guy, <laughs> yeah. What, are, what do you think? What are your uh, thoughts on the get the boys up from uh, Ann Arbor? I I'm honestly fearful of that game. I think it'll be a good game, but. We'll see. I, I don't know enough about their offense, and, and that's where I want to see more. Defensively, they're tough. It's going to be an epic game for the next 10 years when Ohio State plays Michigan the last week of the season. Um, but defensively, they're legit, and they are, they are big, they're fast, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be uh, an, inter- an interesting uh, game when Urban Meyer's offense hosts that defense. So we'll have to see what happens there. We'll move along to what I thought was the most underrated game of the day. Got overshadowed by some things that were going on in Tennessee and uh, in Michigan, or Georgia and Michigan, but North Carolina, Florida State. I had an up and down week picks, but I nailed this one. North Carolina goes into Florida State and gets the win. Uh, Unbelievable 54-yard kick to end the game. But I want to give a shout-out first to North Carolina running that offense. Mr. Biskey has an arm, that offense moves the ball, and we might have our, our first real sleeper in that conference. I think absolutely you have a sleeper in that conference. I think uh, North Carolina has been on their way to becoming a, a legitimate team for the last couple of years, and I think um, just because people think of North Carolina as a, as a basketball and a cross school, they don't necessarily think of it as a football school, and you, you kind of overlook uh, North Carolina a little bit, but I think they're the real deal. I think they've they've... Uh, recruited very well. I think they've they're very well coached, and I think they're very disciplined. And I think that's what it takes to beat teams that have more talent than you. Uh, and that's what they did. They they made less mistakes 
than Florida State, and they went out there and they executed their game plan and didn't get pushed around by, you know, the big name. And and I also want to give a shout-out to the kicker for North Carolina. I was just going to say for it. For doing the Wilder. chop the whole way down Great. after he made that field goal. 54-yarder in Tallahassee's it's, no gimme. It's funny oh, how my two all. highlights in this crazy weekend both involve kickers. Um, but, yeah, 54 yards, does the tomahawk all the way through. When it's I'm up there with the Michigan State kicker. That just, or Penn State. Yeah, yeah. no, the Michigan oh, State kicker. Oh, just did yeah. Well, I respected it as much thing. as I didn't like to see it. I respected it. Um, <laughs> I liked about North Carolina that they knew that in order to beat Florida State in that talented offense, they had to score, they had to keep their foot on the pedal, they didn't get conservative, they had a lead, they let it slip, but they kept throwing the ball. You don't see see that a lot. You see uh, underdogs get the lead and then tighten up. North Carolina just kept going for it. They were calm. Even when Florida State got the lead late, they knew they could move the ball on that defense. So I don't know. And in Florida State, with this is uh, becoming a problem. We thought they righted the ship at halftime of that Ole Miss game week one. But this is another tough loss. And in a one at home where they hadn't lost in forever. Yeah, absolutely. They've been Their defense has been notoriously, notoriously bad to start the season. You look at the pasting Louisville put on them. Obviously, Lamar Jackson's a little different category, but they're still giving up 35 to USF the following week. Yeah, and then uh, with the big uh, rivalry matchup with Miami this coming weekend, so they, they don't have a whole lot of uh, time to correct it. That's worrying times for Jimbo and company. I feel like eventually that they are going to right the ship. They might not be the 9-10 win team we thought they would be going into the season. Dalvin Cook kind of is yet to get going. But you figure with them breaking in a freshman quarterback that there was going to be some growing pains. Just no matter how talented the kid is, Freshman yeah. quarterbacks are going to need time to grow, and I feel like eventually they'll be okay. Certainly uh, some uh, troubling signs, especially on that defensive side of the ball. Crazy. We'll get into picks in just a second, but before we do that and wrap up wrap uh, up this discussion, we got to talk about the Penn State kicker and what <laughs> happened there. And uh, look, I don't, I don't wish pain on anybody like that, um, but... It was only a matter of time before this happened, right? I mean, guys in every locker room watch film. This day and age, they're on Twitter, they're on YouTube, they're heavy on social media. Ron, when you see a kicker dancing and hitting guys that aren't exactly really prepared for it, I, I just thought it was only a matter of time before somebody decided to take matters into their own hands. Now, they went a little too far, it looked like, but uh, he had a rough day against Minnesota. I think, uh, well, in full disclosure, I am from Pennsylvania, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, so I'm... A bit of a uh, bit of a Penn State apologist, but that being said, in my opinion, uh, I I am all for you know getting physical back with uh, him. I have no no problem with hitting him back because I mean he's laid the boom on on some some kickoff returns and it's yeah. been it's made for I mean great video. But that being said, when the ball is in the end zone for a touchback, you can't be doing that and. and and I actually applaud the Penn State team for coming out off the sideline oh, yeah. to defend their kicker. Yeah. And, and I don't think all the time that you would see teams come out to defend their kicker. But this kid, uh, I think Penn yeah, State's had a, had a rough year and had a rough couple of years with everything that's happened. And I think, uh, funny enough, this has been kind of their, their rallying point is the fact that they got a 5'10", 270-pound kicker that just likes to lay the boom. Yeah, Joey Julius is his name, and that, that was building. I mean, he had a rough day. Mm-hmm. All it wasn't just the one hit at the end. They were really messed with him. But Penn State wins the game, so maybe it's something to build on. 
don't know. They fight. No, they're not. But Franco was going to get fired. I mean, Temple and Minnesota back-to-back, like, if you'd have lost to Temple, they'd probably fire him. Yes. Now, he, he's winning games he needs to. Now we'll see what happens when they get to the heart of the Big Ten schedule. All right, Matt Wittenberg, Ryan, probably <laughs> Matt Wittenberg, Ron Schultz, it's time for our the end of this segment with our look ahead to the next week of games, some interesting ones on the slate. And uh, we'll just go, just kind of go through games that catch my eye. The first one, Matt, is Florida hosting LSU. 9 a.m. start time, a Florida team that looks sluggish again after the loss to Tennessee. LSU's got a new voice in the room at Ogeron. He's he's feeling excited about LSU football. He's a good coach. Yeah, you know, Ed, say what you will about Ed Ogeron. He can he knows how to hype his players up. Oh yeah, players players are excited to play for him. That was the big story about when he was here out here in LA at USC. Is everyone was hyped up and ready to go for him, and uh, certainly a whole different atmosphere. I I would imagine between him and uh, Les Miles there, but. Going into the swamp, it's uh, not going to be an easy game for them. It seems like they've worked out their quarterback issues and uh, feel like that they still need to get Fournette a little bit more involved. Obviously, he's been dinged up, but definitely an interesting one. Oh, it's yeah. going to dictate – I feel like this game is going to dictate the trajectories for both of these teams and the rest of their way. I really like how he, Ed Ogeron names every day of the week after a theme. That's a nice touch to just get the, get the tone set each day. Ron, the Red River Shootouts this weekend, Oklahoma, Texas. It and is. now I, I, the reports came out that they're going to keep Charlie Strong out of Texas for the year and then fire him, which is kind of ridiculous that this would leave. Right, if you're Charlie Strong, you're like, what? I still think he does have a chance to save his job if they, if they went out or if they maybe lose one game the rest of the way. This was the game last year that Texas pulled the upset of the year. Do you think they can do it again? I absolutely think they can do that. do it again. I think... Uh, I think Texas is, you know, not a great team, uh, but I don't think they're a bad team. I think they know how to score. Um, I mean, you look at look at their point totals. Okay, we got 50 points against Notre Dame, 41 against UTEP, 43 in a loss to Cal, and and, and 31 in a loss to Oklahoma State last week. Uh, I don't think um, I think the Oklahoma State loss is is not great, uh, but I do think that they know how to score points, well, and and if you're gonna beat Oklahoma, in this yeah. game, they're going to need to. They're going to need to put up forty. I think. This is, I don't think they're going to be. This isn't. This is going to be a high. This is going to be a shootout. It's going to be a high scoring game. Red River shootout. I defense is. A, I'm, is I'm leading Oklahoma. I'm leading Oklahoma though, just because of you know the elephant in the room, Charlie Strong, and Oklahoma is. They've had their backs against the wall now for a couple weeks. They came out at TCU defense didn't look great, but they've scored enough points to outlast uh, the Horned Frogs. So. I don't know. That that is a, a true pick'em game. Let's uh would go to the SEC. Alabama, Arkansas. Now, all right, Arkansas. Underrated game there. It's an underrated game, and it could be could be a trap game for Bama. Arkansas plays them tough every year. They've been an up and down team. So if you're asking me what game could have the widest net of blowout or close, it might be this game this week. Yeah, I think it could uh, pretty much run the gamut. And sorry, Jalen Hurts, I forgot your name, but. Alabama hey, quarterback. Right. Yeah, there he is. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's he's on the Heisman board at like sixty to one, which is crazy. And, I mean, but if he if he starts lighting up SEC ridiculous. defenses, <laughs> exactly, that might be a pretty good uh, return on investment. But from what I can see, uh, Alabama going into Fayetteville, two touchdown favorites. I feel like that's about where it should be. 
I think that Arkansas has potential to hang around for a half. Uh, Bielema shown that he can coach, but I feel like just going back to the way that Arkansas looked against uh, A&M, Alabama likes to do a lot of the similar things offensively. Don't have quite have the same uh, receiving core as uh, Texas A&M does, but I know that's Nick Saban's going to want to put points on them early. They're very balanced, so I feel like Crimson Tide comes out. Maybe even beats that 14-point spread. I'll that's, say probably that's 17. Say 14, man. Wow. Mm. The that's betters, a tough spread. The betters that's, love Bama, a, but yeah. That's a tough spread. I think um, – I absolutely think Arkansas can cover that, though. I think uh, – or, or at least be a push. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think Arkansas plays Bama I, every single year, even when Arkansas was having their down years. They played Bama hard every year. And, it, and seems like, it seems like Bielma, you know, he loves to, well, I, you know, he, he's all about two things, eating and coaching against Alabama, so <laughs> I think he just gets up for that there you game. Go. Eating's a lot. Yeah, he does. All right, we'll go to the ACC run for Virginia Tech, North Carolina. Underrated I, game. Rod Tech up to 25. This is a ranked matchup. To me, as North Carolina's only a two-and-a-half-point favorite, this says a lot about them. If they want to be a legit team, they got to handle business. Here. I think I think North Carolina can come out here and, and cover that spread plus some. It's I, tasty. I, I, <laughs> this is I, a tasty definitely, game. And this is a home game for them. Uh, Virginia Tech, honestly, you know, they look okay. They don't look great. Uh, they blew an early lead to Tennessee and then got blown out. Once once they went down, it was it was over. And you look at their wins: Liberty, Boston College, and East Carolina. I mean, those three wins that gets you ranked, in my opinion. I yeah. think that's that's a that's that's a bit much to uh, to get you ranked. I, I think this is, in my opinion, I think UNC rolls in this one, maybe I'm, by fourteen. I'm with you, but the the only thing that I'm seeing a trend in, into their improved play is they were turning the ball over at a ridiculous rate early in the season. So if you cut that out, you're you could be a different team. But I'm with you. I think North Carolina rolls. Can't afford to look ahead to Miami in that next week, though. I'm glad you brought up Miami because they play Florida State this week, with, and this is I think this is my hill to die on this year. I still don't think they're that good. Uh, you been Miami wrong. or Florida no, State? No, Miami. I okay. like Florida State in this game, in Miami winning, back against the wall. Are we really saying Jimbo Fisher is going to go 0-3 in the ACC this year to start out? Oh, man, that, <laughs> that, that, that would be rough for sure. I, I see a lot of where you're coming from. Miami hasn't exactly proven themselves against the best competition this year. They had that pseudo-upset pick that a lot of people were making, them going into Boone, North Carolina, take on Appy State, and they ended up blowing them out. But, yeah, we look at their competition, Georgia Tech, FAU, and Florida A&M. Yeah, they've beaten the doors off of them, but, I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. I, I like Kaya a lot, but I tend to lean more towards your thinking in this one. I feel like Fisher company has to have this one it's a rivalry game you kind of can kind of throw out the record books in this one FSU is going to be up to play they're going to be motivated and yeah uh Dolphin Stadium or Hard Rock Stadium whatever it's called now not exactly the most uh intimidating of environments but yeah that's why I think I'm kind of leaning your direction on the Seminoles one last game to discuss it's the, the game, game of the week. Game. It's the game day game. Tennessee going on the road like to A&M. One. Seven point favorite A&M at home. College Station. I, I'm. Uh, that's that's an interesting line. I don't think it'll be seven. I don't know what direction it's going to move, but either. but we'll see. Ron, if you look at this game, first question I have: Tennessee defense versus Trevor Knight. 
how is that matchup going to go? Uh, I mean, it depends. Honestly, I think the first quarter is going to set the game, kind of uh, like we were talking about. Uh, Tennessee cannot come out flat here. I think um, that A&M is too good, and they will smell blood in the water if Tennessee comes out flat. Um, losing Cam Sutton early was was real rough for Tennessee, and that really hurt their, their secondary. Um, if I had to pick a winner in this game, um, we for can hurt, we can hurt feelings if right, you're pick and, against Tennessee. It's <laughs> fine. Sorry, Sully. <laughs> uh, no, but honestly, uh, I, I think for some reason, something about Tennessee right now, they, they seem to be finding a way to win. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it'll be by much, but I, I do think Tennessee finds a way to win this game. I think it, I think if you want to have success against Trevor Knight, it's almost like the opposite of Lamar Jackson. I would he he's an underrated athlete as a runner. Absolutely. I would force him to do that more of that than stay in the pocket and throw. Josh Reynolds is the next in a line of Texas A&M receivers that's coming out of nowhere to be beasts. You look all over that. Like I I think <laughs> I've said it like four times yeah. on this podcast. They have the best wide receiver core in the nation. You got Reynolds, Ricky yeah. Seal Jones, and. Christian Kirk, who's an actually an Arizona kid, and I'm pretty sad that he didn't choose to stay uh, home at <laughs> ASU. But all three are dynamic, and it really presents a lot of problems for, for that Tennessee defense. You can't key on any one guy. You got to make sure you put pressure on Knight, and he showed a lot, especially in the Arkansas game, just dashing down the middle and deceptive speed, no doubt. So, a lot of weapons. Tennessee absolutely cannot be behind by double digits at half or. It could be a long afternoon, a hot, one of the tougher places to play in college football. So, yeah, I'm, I would probably lean more towards the Aggies in this one. I feel just those slow starts, I mean, eventually they're going to get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a poor old liquor for Sean Sullivan. I'm not really <laughs> feeling the balls this week. They've been hanging on by a thread on the road, no warm-up game, no uh, off week. It's a tough turnaround to go again on the road and, and have to do this. Definitely but a tough turnaround. The spread is just a little high for my liking, though. That I, seven I is kind I, of I don't know how I feel about that seven. But we'll see. But all right, guys, that was a great college football discussion. Before we go, anything else you want to uh, talk about, look forward to, or just things think, you want to see? I think underrated week. game of the week is that Colorado-USC game. Yeah. I, think, I think Colorado, just because they've been a basement dweller in the Pac-12 for a long time, is underrated. Uh, and they're they're coming in four and one and USC. I mean, like like you said, they're kind of fighting for their their bowl game lives right their now. Coach. And they came their their coach and their bowl game lives right now. And they came out and sorry, wait, but they took it to you know Arizona State. But so so if you want and and this is back at home in the Coliseum in LA, if they want to f- prove that they deserve to be in a bowl game, this this is a good chance uh, for them to do it. Uh, but I tell you what, Colorado's an underrated team. They're they're a good team. Oh, they've looked good so far. I I agree. That's definitely an underrated one. Colorado, actually, first place in the Pac-12 South right now. I'm, I'm looking forward to that Ohio State-Wisconsin game. I think it's it's an intriguing matchup. I, Next I like, week, though. Yeah, I know. I'm looking down the road, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But, yeah, and how Stanford responds against a Washington State team that doesn't look as awful as they've been. A team that can score points and maybe get an early lead and put a seed of doubt in there. But all right, guys, thanks for uh, coming on the show. We'll have to uh, get the panel going uh, more and more throughout the season. Absolutely, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
All right, big thanks to Matt Wittenberg and Ron Schultz for coming through and breaking down college football with me. And once again, thanks to Tim Adams for providing the beats that you hear as you listen to the podcast, listening right now, as a matter of fact. Every Money Mitch Effect episode is made better through some of his beats that he provided for this podcast. And a real quick reminder, you can get this episode and all episodes on SoundCloud, but now on iTunes as well. The Money Mitch Effect is the name of the show. All right, we're going to go to Steve Leveny as we recorded an interview breaking down the MLB playoffs. It's a wild ride that's about to start. Steve Leveny on the Money Mitch Effect. Here's that interview now. All right, now we're joined by Steve Leveny to talk MLB playoffs. Steve, thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks for having me, Mitch. All right, Steve, so we, we go back a ways. Uh, I know you're a Baltimore guy, but uh, went going to school at St. Louis University, and I want to start before we get to the playoffs with the local baseball team there, the St. Louis Cardinals, for the first time since 2010. There won't be playoff baseball in St. Louis, and it's kind of a shocking end to their streak uh, with the organization being as sustainable as it is. But, Steve, there really hasn't been that many you know, changes personnel-wise uh, to the roster. They missed the playoffs this year with a lot of the same faces they've had. Is there one thing you look at for maybe being a reason that they missed out this year? I mean, that's a that's a pretty fair question because their hitting actually showed up this year in a pretty big way, at least from a home run standpoint. They had a little bit of a drought last year, and this year I think they had the second most home runs in the league to the Orioles. But it just looked like they could never get into a rhythm. There was always this 10-win threshold, and so when they were trying to get 10 games above 500, it always looked like they would get to nine games and then back off a few. And I think uh, the last game of the year this year, they finally got to the 10-win plateau, but it was just this inconsistency. They'd lose these games, and you'd think right at that point, okay, they're about to take a, a pretty negative turn, and then they, they kick back up and win a couple of games, but they can never really get something going. And maybe – that was they had those bullpen issues in late July. That was an issue, but it was it was kind of strange because yeah. while they were a good team, it never looked like they were a world beater. They didn't look like the Cubs. They didn't look like the Red Sox. They just, I think, given their history the past decade and a half, you kind of think as the Cardinals, well, they're just going to get in the playoffs, and yeah. it didn't appear to be the case this year. I mean, they missed out by one game. Obviously, they were right there. Uh, but the two things that kind of stood out to me, I mean, 38-43 and 43 at home, that's shocking, you know, for for that team that's been money at home the last couple of years to play so poor at home, you know, five games under 500 when they were a very good team on the road. But also, and we'll, we'll move on to the playoffs in just a second, but what, what happened to Michael Waka this year? I think that was kind of uh, – Kind of startling to see a pitcher that showed so much, that has shown and continues to show so much promise, really struggle uh, for most of the season, to be honest. And I think he showed these issues previously. It's just these things started to to come in all at the same time. Is you saw issues with him, and you saw issues in the pen, and it was everything kind of coalesced. But usually for the Cardinals, everybody cries how they get the best luck. Uh, and I hate to to bring luck into this conversation, but it does look like. There was a pretty unlucky run for a lot of a lot of the talent that the team thought it had coming into the season uh, that didn't necessarily show up. But on the other side of that, you have Jed Yorko, who just went completely insane, and it seemed like every at bat he was hitting a home run. It's not 
unfair to bring luck into it. Uh, it. That's how it works. We know these things with sports, and uh, it evens out. And this was just one of those years where it didn't really work out for the Cardinals. It's easy to, you know, every team can point to one game, Steve, and be like, we could have easily won this game. You know, that's why I think it's a little tough to do that. But on the flip side of that, the Mets and the Giants are the teams that find a way to get it done. I want to start with the Mets, Steve, because this is a team that I don't know how much how what their chances are of continuing this run, but just getting to the playoffs is pretty impressive considering how poor they've hit all season and the fact that all their pitchers have been hurt down the stretch. I love watching the Mets. The second half, and I think even Syndergaard said it uh, early in the second half of the year where he said they were a second-half team. They were last year. It appears that they were this year, too, and with all of their pitchers ending up on the mend, except for for Syndergaard and then Bart, it was their offense surged. It, they had just exploded, where in the first half of the year they were kind of middling along. And I don't know what their long-term projection is for the playoffs as far as how deep they can go, but in a one game, especially against the Giants, whose offense is anemic at best, I would say they have a pretty good chance. Remarkable to me because I always like a team that just fights and finds a way to just gut it out to get to the playoffs. Even with that hitting run, they still finished the regular season 26th in baseball. Yeah, it was atrocious. Uh, it was, and I, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit. The Giants, on the other hand, tough team to figure out. We know all about even year magic, and if they do it again, I might just stop watching baseball in even years. But <laughs> honestly, you're right about their offense being anemic. The pitching was. I'll put it kindly, inconsistent. But again, a team down the stretch that finds that needs to win a game, sweeps the Dodgers, wins big series, you know, takes a, a few from the Cardinals when they came. This is a Giants team that, when push comes to shove, Steve just knows how to win. Yeah, and they they really play a nice foil to the Mets because in the second half, where the Mets offense surged, it really seems like the Giants rotation really started working. Um, I mean that trio that they have of Bumgarner, Cueto, and Samarja, that's tough to beat, especially in a five-game series when you know at least two of those guys are going to go two games probably, um, or even in a seven-game series where if they throw Matt Moore in there, that's two lefties. That's a pretty tough combo. The one question that the Giants really have is that bullpen, and I know Casilla and Romo were playing musical chairs a little bit towards the end there, but it's that's going to be a great great matchup and I would even say whoever had or the Cubs if they had to play him in the next round that's going to be a tough challenge regardless well, it's of, funny. yeah it, it's funny to me because the Giants would they blow close to 30 saves this year and that's yeah, the difference it was something that's, ridiculous. it's easily the difference between not only hosting the wild card playoff game but winning the division um, so that's going to be a factor and now I don't know where you stand on this issue probably uh maybe a little different having it having a horse in the race but i love the wild card playoff it's definitely exciting one game uh, winner take all and i don't think we've had a year steve where each league's one game playoff is so radically different from just what type of game we're expecting to see starting with what looks to be a pitching showdown between Bumgarner and Syndergaard in the nl i personally really like the playing game i know a lot of people are a little torn on and they think it takes away from from actually winning the division, but I think it makes the, even winning the division that much more important so you don't have to play that one-game plan, where I think, as previously, uh, if you got the wild card, you automatically got five playoff, or at least three playoff games, potentially five. Right. But, yeah, the two games are, are vastly different. You have two great pitchers on one side, and then 
you have the Jays and the Orioles, whoever the Orioles are throwing out there. And I think they announced it earlier that Tillman was, was going to yeah. pitch. So. Yeah. Um, you know, and I could see disliking the wild card game. If you have that first wild card team that is, you know, abundantly better than the second, but you can't say that at all this year. These are right two two four teams. I should say right next to all, each other in the standings. Uh, each fighting for the final playoff spots. But as I look at this NL game, I, I'm wondering, and I, I made a deal with myself a long time ago, Steve, never to bet, again, bet against Madison Bumgarner in a playoff game. But Syndergaard, though, is the type of pitcher that won't back down with the home field advantage. I, I really could see this being a coin flip. I have to agree with you there. And with that Giants bullpen, Bumgarner could get him seven innings, and that bullpen could take everything away in two. And you really have the Giants have to at least get a couple of runs on Syndergaard, which is has shown to be pretty tough. And that offense does not click very well. I think they were well below league average. And if the Mets can get at least two or three on the Giants, I think that might be enough to seal it. Because while the Mets bullpen isn't incredible, it's better than average. I'd say it's pretty good with Familia. Oh, I can't go against the Giants, and I think Bumgarner is just. I, I think he holds on to the ball as long as he can, and would. I think he'd fight Bruce Bochy to stay in the game nine innings, like four this month. He very well might. He's, he's trying to fight fight everybody this year. It looked like so. I don't see why he wouldn't fight his manager. Let's go to the American League. Steve Leveney on the Money Mitch effect, and we'll start with your team, the Baltimore Orioles. I, I'm really impressed. Like we mentioned, teams fighting a way to get into the playoffs, and and. I don't know that there's a team that just knows exactly what their strength is and just tries to stick to the script. The Orioles yeah. are, long ball, are long ball hitters. That's it, and it's worked. I don't know how much further it'll work, but it got them where they need to get. And it, it, it seems like it's been this way for about half a decade now, and I know it aggravates all of the Oriole fans because you look at that starting rotation at the beginning of the year, and they're, they're throwing who knows out there, and even now – you look at it, they're throwing guys like Wade Miley out there and hoping something works. Uh-huh. But the guys they get, they all they all seem to mash. That trade, that Steve Clevenger trade for Mark Trumbo, how ridiculous was that? What a payoff. Yeah. I was looking at the lineup you guys throw out there, two to six, and it's ridiculous how many home runs that you're able to uh, <laughs> to come up with. I mean, just look like Davis hitting, uh, I think they said he's going to hit six. Shoop hit seven. Shoop hit 25 home runs this year. I mean... That's huge power coming from, I think, your fourth or fifth, or maybe fifth or sixth best home run hitter, which <laughs> is nuts. But you have Manny Machado out there who, for my money, is – he's not Mike Trout, but he's in the conversation for next best player in the league. You have guys like Trumbo and Davis where they're not going to wow you with their, their average or ability to get on base, but they can change the score very rapidly. And then you even have guys like Adam Jones, Matt Wieters, and Jonathan Scope, where while Adam Jones is not the, the player he used to be, there's it's still a very potent offense to have to go against. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think um, it, it's funny because if you look at the the history of the home run going on home run based teams going into the playoffs, two things stand out. Obviously, we we know the old adage: chick dig the long ball, and that's true. Uh, but the other thing is. You're playing with fire because, on one hand, you don't know how sustainable it is. You could see a team go cold and and exit the playoffs very swiftly. I think the Cubs proved that last year in the NLCS. But one game, 
and any short sustained run, they're always in it. And you mentioned flipping the scoreboard. You go to Toronto that hits a lot of home runs, and they're throwing out Stroman, who has had a good season. What are we saying? This could be a 10-9 final score, somewhere in that range? It very well might be, too, because Stroman has been atrocious against the Orioles this year. I think he has like a 7 ERA against the O's. And Tillman has been, except for this year, pretty awful at uh, in Toronto. So that's really what they're uh, – I think that's what both teams are going for. I would have honestly preferred that the Orioles went with Ubaldo Jimenez. Well, as I'm saying this, that's kind of hard for me to believe. And I would have thought that Toronto would have been better off going against going with Liriano against the O's because the O's can't hit left-handed pitching. Yeah, at this point, I think each team is just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And I, I don't, it, it, you can't really rely on any of the starting pitchers, but both teams are going to come in with their bats and hope it can carry them. I, I know you're, I know you're probably leaning Orioles on the pick, but do you honestly think they're going to win? I think they. It's a toss-up, really, to who I think is going to win. But I think that you can depend on the O's pen a lot more than you can depend on Toronto's pen right now. Osuna's had some issues, and Zach Britton is unstoppable this year. I think he's even some people have even given him fringe Cy Young uh, nod okay. just be, just because of how ridiculous he's been. I mean, he has a sub sub zero point six ERA, and I mean he's great but the rest of that bullpen is good too. If your starter can get you five average innings, and as long as the score is not too far out of hand, I think the bullpen can take over from there, and that could be game over for the Jays. I like, I do like Baltimore in this game. Um, I just Toronto is a similar type team. I just think it's a classic strength versus strength matchup. I think Baltimore might do it a little bit better. It's been a down year for all of those bats in Toronto. Um, you know, average-wise, I don't think they're hitting all too particularly well. Uh, and we, as we saw last year, the Jays can dig themselves holes. I think if, if Baltimore gets up early, I think they're going to be hard hard pressed to give that uh, game away. But one one other thing that we didn't discuss, the managerial effect. I, I know you like Buck Showalter. I, I do as well. Do you think the, his role as manager can help sway this game, uh, the outcome in any way? I think it might be able to, though this past week, uh, he was a little, he was a little rough with some of the decisions, especially in that Yankee series. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, it's hard down the stretch. I know it's a 162 game season, and uh, there were some rough decisions. Uh, but I don't think he was alone in that. I think there was a lot of managers that have had better days, just wanting to get to the playoffs. Obviously. Yeah, it seemed so like it seemed like it was around the league where some managers were making some pretty out of character decisions. We'll go now to the other team, Boston, uh, in the playoffs. There's three AL East teams. We've seen this a couple times last year in the NL Central. But Steve, three teams from that division, and it, it was as good a year for the AL East as I can remember, top to bottom. The Yankees were fighting down the stretch, obviously, when they called up Gary Sanchez. Tampa Bay wasn't a complete disaster. It, you've seen this firsthand, but that division is it, getting younger. There's a lot of depth um, it could be tough, and it could be a, a reoccurring theme that we could have three AL East teams for a couple of years now down the stretch making the playoffs. Yeah, it's kind of scary for a small market fan uh, with those other teams reloading. The Yankees seem to be getting there, and the Red Sox, who have an endless supply of money, and even Toronto, who isn't afraid to spend. But, I mean, that's kind of how the AL East has always been. There's always been some pretty strong talent in there, but with the Yankees and Red Sox, with the Red Sox reloaded, when the Yankees seeming to be reloading, it's going to be 
going to be pretty interesting for the next few years. Oh, it sure is. And Boston, what, what scares me about them, and we'll just segue right into my thoughts on the Red Sox going into the playoffs. Even when they've won championships, this is the first time that I remember them being so young, that the young guys are, are, are leading the charge, which terrifies you for a couple of different reasons, one being that the future looks unbelievably bright even with Ortiz retiring. I wonder about, and I might be nitpicking here, but pitching, can it hold up past Porcillo? Um, I, I think he's a clear pick for the Cy Young. But we've seen pitching be the deaths of some of these uh, star-hitting teams, and I wonder if that's going to be the case in Boston. The thing with Boston's pitching is I don't think it needs to be anything more than adequate with how good that offense is. If, if, you, yep. have, if you have them just doing what they did all season, it would seem like it would work enough, and I understand the playoffs are, are a little bit different of a game, but with Porcello Price and then the bullpen that got a little better towards the end of the, the month or the end of the season with September, I think, they had like a one ERA for the whole month. That seems to be things seem to bode pretty well for them. But that offense is just it's unbelievable. Top it's to really bottom. Here. Uh Betts is I mean, that that guy, Jesus. I it, we were joking last week how it's like he doesn't get make outs. Um, with Ortiz having the, the best probably the best final season anyone's ever had in, in baseball. You run the risk of if they ever fall behind in a series having to throw that third, maybe even fourth starter out there and really rely on him, but they might not even need to get to that point. That's a scary thing, and and you could be spot on with what will happen with Steve Loveny here on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, let's flip it to the team they'll be playing, uh, the Cleveland Indians. So I grew up, and I'm currently an Indians fan, but Steve, honestly, I was terrified of this matchup when it looked like it was going to happen. Now that we're actually in the series, I'm having my doubts about Boston, and I think given the injuries to the pitching staff that the Indians have had, and also, in my opinion, the fact that it's a best of five, I think it, it doesn't bode as well for Cleveland's chances. Yeah, losing Salazar and Carrasco really kind of yeah. shot down the Indians' chances, where they were looking great running up into that. I think the Indians' offense is fantastic when it's in Cleveland. When it's away from Cleveland, that's going to be the issue, and you're going to need to take a game uh, – you're probably going to need to take a game from Boston because you can't get behind them. Yeah, you're right. I, I worry in, in last year's blue, the blueprint was that Cubs-Cardinals series. You lose one of those two first home games, you might not get back home for that game five. Um, I wonder. I, if, if they don't win the first two, I mean, they're going they're going Kluber-Bauer 1-2. If, if it's 1-1, I, I really wouldn't feel good at that point. Yeah, and the bullpen is – it's pretty decent. Andrew Miller aside, who I think is fantastic. But the Indians can mash with the Sox. I don't know if they can mash as well as the Sox, and I don't know if the lineup depth is one through nine nearly as good. But in a five-game series, I think if they can jump on the Sox early and have the Sox chasing them instead of vice versa, I think there's a definite chance. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's a contrast of styles, and I think – Man, game one, I know I'm biased, but you might not see a better a better game of uh, an opening game of a series. I'm just I'm excited for that and I think that's gonna set the tone. I don't wanna call it a must win for either team, but that's a huge advantage whoever wins game one's gonna have on uh, Thursday night. So should be very, uh, very interesting. The other side of that, Steve, in the American League are the Texas Rangers waiting for the AL wild card winner. I gotta give the Rangers some props here. 
because I don't know many people that thought that they would win, they would have the best record in the American League when the season started. We knew they'd be good. They were buyers at the deadline, getting Lucroy as uh, as their new catcher. Do you think they entered the playoffs as a legitimate front runner in the AL, or are you not buying uh, the hype? I don't think I buy them as the top team in the AL just because the Sox are are so powerful. The Rangers kind of did what the Orioles did a couple of years ago where they, they get into the playoffs with a better record than their run differential would say. Their run differential, I think, was plus eight for the season, which is pretty low, especially for a team that has that many wins. They have two great starters, though, in Cole Hamels and Yu Darvish, but that bullpen is bad. It is, yeah. it is rather bad. It's not good, and that's what makes this next stat kind of unbelievable when you break it down. 36-11 and 11 in one-run games this year, which is crazy considering that their bullpen's not that good. But also, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it bodes well. We see that with other sports. Uh, hockey comes to mind. Winning close games, it's an advantage to be used to it, but can you count on that all the way through? I don't really know what to make about that. And I don't think you can because you, what you're doing in the playoffs is you're facing teams who more often than not have won close games during the season. So that kind of record throughout, I don't think holds up hold, or holds as much water in the playoffs. I mean, look at the buzzsaw that the Royals did a couple of years ago through the teams, and the teams they beat were good. For the past two years, they beat were good, and those were teams that had good records in one-run games, but all you have to do is be the better team. You brought that wild card Royals run two years ago, and that's, that's a great point because they won the wild card game against Oakland where they had to come back late. Then they went out to Anaheim and won the first two games of that series, both late down the stretch. Momentum is crazy in this sport, especially. That's why that's why it's not that surprising if a wild card team wins, even if it is a very close game, dramatic, and then just takes that momentum with them on the road. Yeah, and I think that that's where you see a lot of the argument against maybe this wild card, this one game playoff, is that a lot of these wild card teams have done rather well going in. And the momentum keeps going. And so you have the Royals, who were a per- perfectly prime example of that, and I think uh, the Cardinals a couple of years ago. Real quickly, do you think uh, the Rangers care who they play? Are they think they're a better matchup for one or the other team, Orioles or Blue Jays? I imagine that the Ranger fans would not like to play the Jays after last year. but yeah. Or this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that the Rangers, the better matchup for the Rangers is probably the Orioles because the Jays do have decent starting pitching. They have some decent starting pitching. The O's, who knows what those starters would show in a five-game series. Ubaldo's been great the second half of the year, but, I mean, that's got to end sometime. And I think every Oriole fan is, is just holding on to, to each good throw that he makes. Yeah, I'm tempted now to make my uh... – my, change my pick to Toronto just to see the uh, the rematch order Batista too, but no, I think yeah, there's definitely some interesting storylines there with Texas, who they play next round, uh, but it should be a good series regardless. Let's go to the National League now. Steve Levine on the Money Mitch effect. All right, the series that is set: Dodgers Nationals. Nationals with home field. That'll start on Friday. Let's start with the Nationals. I know this team is is talent laden. They've had they've got some injuries to overcome, Steve. But 
are you buying them as being back as a legitimate power to challenge the Cubs, make a run at the whole thing? I would say yes if they had to play anybody but the Dodgers. Oh, inter- interesting. With Ramos out, Murphy's coming back, but you don't know what shape he's going to be in. And Strasburg is probably not going to play throughout the entire postseason. They're throwing Scherzer and Roark out there, but after that, it's kind of questionable. I think the Nats are good. I just think this doesn't appear to be the year where things are working for the Nats as much as they would like them to, or at least at the right time. You have Trey Turner out there who's incredible, and he's a fascinating player to watch. But I think the Dodgers throwing out Kershaw, Hill, and Kenta Maeda, and I know the last three games have not been been great to watch for the Dodgers, that's a tough lineup to beat. And especially with the Dodgers' bullpen being as good as it is, it's the best bullpen ERA in baseball, it's going to be tough for the Nats to, to score runs. It really will. The Dodgers, though, Steve, it's so interesting because we've seen them this year maybe face adversity as good as they've, as they've ever had. We, we always question their mental toughness, some playoff collapses in the past. But I look at Kershaw's injury – and I look at how they responded and how they went down, tracked the Giants, caught them, and then clearly won the division. It could have been turning uh, turning a page. I don't know if you see it that way, but I'm, I'm getting that vibe in Los Angeles. Yeah, they were a fantastic team after the All-Star break. We came back, and he showed why people initially came to love Yasiel Puig. You have guys like Sager out there. And that lineup, yeah, it's bad against lefties, but the Nats aren't going to be thrown at any lefties. So I think this series bodes well for the Dodgers because they were a little battle-tested throughout the season. And I think the Dodgers, where they would really struggle, is advancing, where they would have to play some serious lefties that they just can't hit. I think they're batting near the Mendoza line. One aspect of this series that I'm really looking forward to, Steve, is the managerial side. You have... Two teams that apparently failed in recent years in the playoffs, they, in recent memory, went with new managers. You get you get Dave Roberts replacing Mattingly, whose decisions with the bullpen were suspect down the stretch. And then the other side, Dusty Baker in place of Matt Williams, who, quite frankly, just blew a couple games uh, two years ago during the playoffs. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how each new manager does with their respective team. Yeah, I'm a... Big, I'm a big Dave Roberts fan compared to Don Mattingly. I thought Don Mattingly was a pretty poor manager uh, and, or tactician, but I'm not a huge Dusty Baker fan. I never have been. I thought he was always pretty poor with pitchers. So I don't know how much of a an upgrade that was over Matt Williams, but I know players love playing for Dusty, and it it shows. But I'm thinking that the Dodgers might have the advantage there, at least from a managerial uh, tactical standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's something we might not even really identify until the key moment of the game, how each pitcher manages their bullpen, what they decide to do, leave their starters. I'm really looking forward to that series. Before I let you go, Steve, i got to get your thoughts on the Cubs. They come into the playoffs as the prohibitive favorite. And I, and I, I obviously think they earned it. There's a lot of pressure on them to you know get the job done this year and end the curse. But I can't remember a team – that had the total package going into a playoff run, hitting and pitching. Isn't it so strange to have the Cubs as far and away the best team in the league? It's unreal, but they're they're exactly that. That team is top to bottom fantastic. You have 
incredible starting pitching, and yet Arietta's fallen off a, the past few months, and there's some question as to where his slider is and where his command is. But I think even with Lester Hendricks, and you can get a not nearly as good as last year Arietta, but but still a very good Arietta. That's a tough team to beat because that pen is deep as well. And look at the lineup. Even the players who who you didn't expect to come into their own this year have started coming into their own. You have Chris Bryant, who's maybe the second best player in baseball. They're, there's It's hard to find flaws with the Cubs. And I think that in the NL, which appears to be the much tougher league from a playoff standpoint, that's going to bode very well for them. I'd say thank God that Arietta slowed down because I'd shudder to think what this team would look like if he was pitching like he did last year. I also don't know a team that could overcome the Schwarber injury and, and not even miss a beat. Honestly, Steve, I don't know that any team could beat them. I know it's the playoffs. I know that we've seen things happen. But going into, I'll say going into the wild card round, I feel very, very confident that they at least get to the NLCS. I don't see a Giants or Mets team beating them in a best of five. Yeah, I really don't, though. If I was the Cubs, I would probably prefer to play the Mets on this one just because that Giants even-year thing might not be real, but it certainly feels real after three three times of it. So, Yeah, there, there's the revenge factor. I think they'd like to play the Mets and get even for last year. Um, but with the Giants, I, I agree with what you said about the even-year magic being a potential factor. But they're throwing Bumgarner game one, and I think the advantage, in the wild card, I should say, and their advantage isn't there anymore that Bumgarner could possibly just carry them all the way through. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. It is strange, as you said, that the Cubs are the prohibitive favorites, but I haven't seen one thing to doubt that. Uh, lastly, before before we get out of here, your World Series pick, are you going Cubs and it sounded like Red Sox. Is that is that accurate? I think it is, and it seems like that's what everybody's going with. But the Cubs are baseball's best team, and it looks like the Sox are really the only team in the AL that you can say have a definite advantage over anybody. And I'm thinking the Cubs win in six, and then the whole city of Chicago completely erupts. I think Cubs-Red Sox is far and away the best series from a TV standpoint. I think oh, they're yeah, funny. The fact that that could be Poppy's last games or World Series games against the Cubs trying to break his streak. The MLB is probably looking at shots with it. It would be the series <laughs> of the millennium thus far, I would believe. A close, not a close second, but a realistic second would be Cubs Indians. Two teams have just never won anything. Um, I, I'm not going to pick the Indians as much as I'd like to see that. The pitching injuries are just too much uh, to overcome. I, I'll, I'll give the Rangers a chance, though. I want to see what a Rangers Red Sox ALCS would look like. From uh, from a tactical standpoint, but I'm I'm leaning with you, Red Sox Cubs, and I would say, I would say that goes seven. Uh, I think the Cubs win it in seven games. I think. Oh, wow. That would be yeah. Give us the seventh game, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's getting your money's worth. It would. Sports would shut down that day. It would be hard. Even I think even the NFL would uh, would have a tough time grabbing the headlines the morning of a game seven in Chicago. Chicago and Boston. But all right, Steve, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Appreciate you coming out here and uh, talking baseball. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to all our guests today, Ron Schultz, Matt Wittenberg, 
and Steve Levity. Thanks as always to Tim Adams for, for providing the music. And special thanks to all you out there for listening and spreading the word of the Money Mitch Effect. Now 11 episodes deep. It's quite a quite a journey that we're on, and I'm glad to be on it with all of you. You can find every episode on SoundCloud, Money Slash Mitch. I post every episode on my Twitter handle, Money Mitch number Money Mitch M21 is the handle. And now on iTunes. We debuted on iTunes. It's pretty cool. Gonna be posting a lot of the episodes on there as well. Later on this week, we're going to have a couple more interviews as we talk NFL football, some surprise guests as we dabble into the humorous side of sports. You're not going to want to miss that, believe me. That's it for me. Thank you for your time. I am Mitch Michaels. The Money Mitch Effect will continue to grow because of your support. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful rest of the week.